Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the Book of Joe podcast. I am Tom Verducci, and I am with Joe Madden. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing wonderfully. Uh, you're stuck, not stuck, but you're there in San Diego. I know you, like we just talked about, <laughs> you never see the light of day. Nobody leaves their hotel for three, possibly almost four days. Uh, it's kind of a fun grind, though. Yeah, this is the winter meetings edition of the Book of Joe podcast. And uh, you're right. A lot of work gets done, not in the lobby, but in the suites of these teams behind laptop computers. But right. I wanted to start with <laughs> a, a good human story, Joe, because I think that's what our book is full of. The Book of Joe, of course, we're talking about. Um, yeah, we love analytics, but we love people too. Right. And I, the story involves Dusty Baker. I mean, how can you not have been happy for Dusty Baker, 73 years old, wins his first World Series as a manager? And I want to know how this story will relate to you, Joe, after winning the World Series with the Cubs. I mean, does the food taste better? Is the sky bluer? Is life more joyful with that championship? And I was talking to Dusty about that. And of course, Dusty won as a player, but this was the first time as a manager. He said the first thing he did pretty much when he got home was he went to visit the cemetery where his deceased father and mother are buried. And he said his dad was a big lover of flowers. He brought fresh flowers to the grave. And as he said, I had a conversation with them. And what he remembers was when Dusty was the manager of the Giants in 2002. And Joe Madden was sitting across the field in the dugout as the Angels bench coach. And of course, the Giants infamously blew the lead in game eight and uh, game eighth inning of game six and lost game seven. And after that, Dusty's father told him, son, you'll probably never win the World Series. 
And that was Dusty's dad's way of Johnny B. Baker Sr. of motivating his son. And I know, Joe, you can relate to this. It was, as Dusty calls, negative motivation. So all these years later, 20 years later, World Series winning manager of the Houston Astros, this conversation he has with his departed father, he says, Dad, I did it. I won the World Series. I just thought that was so cool, bringing it first full circle. The influences on our lives are always our influences, even when they are gone. It's just a beautiful story. Uh, and Joe, I want you to relate to it or what it means when you do win that world championship. I know you got one, as I mentioned, a coach with the Angels. But of course, breaking the 108-year curse with the Cubs as the manager in 2016. Uh, that's all relatable. It's highly relatable, actually. Um, you know, first of all, it's, it's always interesting when you're 70 years old, Dusty, 70 plus, I'm almost there. And you talk about your dad, like your dad as though you were still 10 or 12 or eight years of age. I love that part of it. And yes, I, I did the same thing, actually. I went to the gravesite for my dad and my uncles and aunts are buried around and my grandparents are right down the couple rows over. But I cried, man. I cried as I was talking to my dad in front of uh, his tombstone several years ago. Uh, kind of wept over all that thing, uh, winning the World Series first time, 108 years. You know, my dad had challenged me, not necessarily verbally, but uh, when I was at Lafayette, when I, it's in the book, when I decided to not participate in football anymore and he kind of got upset with me. And uh, But nevertheless, I knew what I wanted to do with my life and continued on. And yeah, my goal was to- Wait win. a second. You, did, you didn't speak for a while, Joe. Kind of upset, I think, is a little bit of an understatement. Yeah, no? yes. Six months, <laughs> about six months, my dad didn't speak with me. And uh, that's kind of difficult to even imagine uh, based on the relationship that we had had. Uh, so yeah, my pop didn't talk to me for about six months after I retired from uh, football just to play baseball. But my goal was to get there to the major leagues as a player, never having realized that, of course, coaching and managing are, is a pretty nice other way to do it. So you get to the Cubs in 2016 and or 15, have a great year. And then all you keep hearing about is that was 107 years, then it became 108 years and uh, never had, had, hadn't been done in, in over a century. And so when you're able to be part of that particular moment, that, that's... Um, it's unimaginable, really. It's it, you, I talk about I mean, all your surrealisms come true. There's one right there. Um, to be able to walk on that rainy field after the game in Cleveland on Game 7 with Jay there and going over to talk to the boys in the press room, like they're, they're, they're actually the group on the field and it's raining outside and uh, just taking this all in one, hopefully one moment at a time, but it's insurpassable to, to, be, to arrive at that point in your career, something you've always wanted to do. I mean, yes, they had done it as a coach, but to be your own team as a manager, holding your own baby, having that particular moment, it's just, it's beyond thought process. And and then I had to share with my dad, had to. I was just there when I was back home in Sugarloaf for, for the summer in Hazleton. I stopped there before I, I left to come back out here to visit with him. But I've always had this conversation with my pop. And like we've talked about, his hat still in my my bag, which is downstairs in the closet, my my backpack. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's meaningful. It had to be done. I know he heard every word. And you gather, you gain strength from that. And you're able to, uh, because this, you know you're from. You know who you are. You're standing on the dirt. Your dad's lying there right below you, and you, you know who you are. And uh, that was a very, very profound moment for me. Yeah, great story. Thanks for sharing that with all of our listeners. Um, I thought it was important to start with that because Dusty, to me, is, is such a national treasure. Uh, I think the baseball world and even people not who are not baseball fans just so happy for him because of the journey and he's given so much to this game. And now of course he's back to try to win another one back to back. And Joe, you're one of the 20 or so odd managers who were not successful defending a championship. If Dusty Baker asked you, what's the hardest part about bringing back pretty much the same group and trying to win another one, how would you answer that? 
Yeah, and that's what we talked about in, again in the book. I reference uh, seeing with first-time eyes, feeling with first-time passion. Um, again, after 108 years, youngest team ever to do that. I mean, I was really concerned going into the next year. You knew there was going to be some kind of a hangover. I know people don't like that, but I think in today's game and, and the way the playoffs are set up and how many games you have to win to get there in the competition, et cetera, makes it even more difficult now than it's ever been to repeat. So you have to feel that first time vibe going on. And if you can't, if you can't arrive at that internally, you may do well, but it's hard to really get over the top. And I think our game is the most difficult one to repeat because of all the games involved to get there. So from the beginning, I mean, you, I, I wanted that. I said that early on. I said that, I think, in my first meeting uh, with the boys uh, in 2017 was that exact phrase in order to get them to try to understand that. And within that, um, more specifically, um, with Dusty's situation, and if I get the opportunity again, you really have to get to the guys that you know are your lead bulls, that you know you are leaders, because they're the guys that have to really get this done. Yankees were so successful with the Jeter group and Pettit and Posada, Bernie Williams, that group, because those were that's who those guys were. They, I think constantly they're able to flush it and come back as though they've never, never done it before and attack it with the same zeal. You see it with Tom Brady. You saw it with Michael Jordan, Larry Bird. There's, there's, there's freaks out there, man. There's the freaks out there that are able to bring that fire, that original fire with them annually, even though they had just reached the zenith the year before. So if there's some way to point that out to the guys and really have them buy into that concept or that thought to me, I believe that's the the best and only way to go about this. Um, you know, I, I've never met Pat Riley. I've read a lot of his stuff, Phil Jackson, et cetera. But it's a combination of helping to set the mindset, set the edge where, yes, we got to attack it as though it's never happened before. And then you have to have a couple animals on the team that really bring out the best in the group and within their practice and their daily zeal for the game and their preparation and just everything they do on a daily basis indicates, uh, I really want to do this again. So maybe that's a, a nonspecific way of describing all this, but those are the kind of things, the intangible components, sometimes the unexplainable things that have to be given some kind of a quality, like a life-like quality in order to re-attain what you had done before. I think that's the most important thing to do. Yeah, I like that. And I would say the Astros have at least one of those guys in Jose Altuve. You know, let's face it, he's he's fought the odds his whole career being essentially five foot six and being told, go home, don't even come to this tryout, you're too small. And here he has many all-star games and a championship, a couple of championships later. That guy burns to win. I don't think he's ever satisfied. Hey, we've done well. We've got a ring. Now it's time to, to shift down, downshift here. Um you know, he's a big part of what they do. So they've got a chance. That team is still loaded. The addition of Jose Abreu, I love on that team. He's another guy I think is uh, one of our glue guys, Joe, a guy who loves playing the game, plays hurt. And, and I know you love this. He puts the ball in play to get runners in from base. Yeah. He, you know, as a pitcher, you, you know, he's going to go out of the zone if he has to. He's going to do whatever he can to put the ball in play. And actually, he he might be the the whole linchpin to this whole thing. I mean, he has not won that thing yet. He has not won that championship. And he might be, he's kind of like maybe the perfect guy to bring in there under the circumstances, coming off of a victory, a, a World Series championship. And you bring in somebody that's hungry, latter part of his career, but very productive. Uh, one of the best RBI dudes out there. I mean, he's kind of like Edgar, Edgar Martinez, good to me, uh, with his ability to go to the opposite field when it's important in the game. He's not up there just trying to hit a home run to left center. He will make adaptations. He does all those different things. I think he's, he's a great addition. He's the perfect fit for them right now. We're going to take a quick break. And I mentioned I am at the winter meetings in San Diego. And I know a lot of you listeners are probably asking, what the heck goes on at these meetings? Are there actual meetings? And to Joe's position in the game, what does the manager do at the winter meetings? We'll attack that question when we get back to the Book of Joe. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Joe, you have to answer this question here. People are probably wondering at these winter meetings, what's going on and how much influence does a manager have in these meetings? You've been through a bunch in the course of your career. Yeah, I mean, uh, let me just give you a quick rundown of the day. Um, it starts pretty much at 30, 9 o'clock in the morning. You go to that war room, have a little breakfast, and then everybody gathers as the GM or the assistant GM or both call a meeting. So you sit in this room yourself, uh, not really any other the major league coaches, normally a bunch of scouts and front office types will be sitting in there, and you start uh, going over your group and what's, what's your group all about and what you specifically need. Put up on a big grease board and you start uh, trying to attach different names of different organizations, teams, how they fit in and, and who you actually like uh, as, as within your scouting department. And then among the scouts, they're all assigned different groups, different teams, maybe four or five teams to two particular scouts who then will get around and work the lobby a bit and look with the other scouts and try to feel out exactly what they're uh, really interested in. If they have an interest in your guys, is there any way to make a Mushad, make a marriage right here? And you try to get that done conversationally. That's one of the things that does uh, attempt to get done conversationally. So that all that is one thing that really does actually happen down in the lobby. Whereas in the past, like the GM and the real the, the head guy would go downstairs, have a couple drinks, smoke a couple cigars, and really try to get things done. Now, it's, it's more like a team situation where guys are sent out there to do that. Uh, so they'll go downstairs and they'll, they'll gather information. And then here comes the next morning and you go back and you, and you cover exactly what had been found out. And this this sometimes um, lights a fire, sometimes douses it very immediately. So that's a big part of the morning situation from the manager's perspective. Do I have any influence in those meetings? Um, if I've known players, uh, they will ask you about uh, particular guys if, if you had them on your team. More specifically, we have more inside information. Uh, yes, you're always included in conversations. But at the end of the day, I think the manager has very little influence on whether somebody's acquired or not. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. I, I think that the, manage, the general manager and the whole staff, scouting staff, have way more intel because they've seen guys away uh, not just when I we play the team, particularly I get to see players and make my judgments. They get to see them all the time, and they get to see them against different competition. And I, th- I think thus make um, better decisions with that. So I'm okay with that. I've always thought that is the right way to do things uh, yeah, with that. that. That's but, interesting, Joe. Let me stop you there because it's interesting sure. because you would think that you, being the baseball guy in uniform, would have a really good perspective on a player and what he can and cannot do. But what you're saying is these people have a, a wider lens and have more information. So your opinion, not that it's not valuable, may be less valuable than the wider perspective, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I, I do believe that. I, I believe that um, there, there's a certain amount. I'd I like to believe I'm not biased in my decision-making. I think we all want to believe that. Uh, I started out as a scout in 19... Um, was it 81? And I I really believe I learned that. I learned how to break down a player independent of my personal feelings about this guy. I will give you my personal feelings. But then again, when I'm describing my player, I have to really put set those aside and talk about the guy, the player, his tools, and how I think he fits in. And I still believe I'm able to do that. I guess in a sense, I'm also talking about in general terms that there's a a lot of bias involved in people. Uh, Scouts can become salesmen too. They they want guys, they they want to take opportunity to, to acquire somebody and they want their name attached to the guy. I still believe that's part of the industry too. But I believe the way I was raised, I try to keep my bias out of it if, it, if in fact there is one, and the thought that I have not seen enough of this guy away from my particular team. Now, 
If I have a really strong opinion on somebody and I think I'm absolutely on target with it, I will let that be known too. I, I absolutely will because uh, I, I have been taught well and I think I am a good scout. So all these different layers have to be considered, I think. But the manager has some input. I think it depends on the whomever running the show there and how much they really want to listen, how much they value that input. Uh, we're all scouting each other all the time. Scouting directors have to know every one of their scouts. They have to know, if are they easy graders? Are they difficult graders? Where do they fall in line in regards to... Uh, um, how, really, when it comes down to how, how do they evaluate? And then you have to glean from that and attach uh, what you believe to be the right answer and, and eventually conclude yourself being the GM or the scouting director himself. So all these things, I don't know if that sounds complicated, but I believe all that stuff. And that, that's why I think there needs to be separation of power when it comes to doing jobs, uh, you know, front office does front office things. Coaches and managers do coaches and manager things. Scouts do scout things. I really believe that sincerely. And I and I think when it all meshes together and everybody listens to one another with, you have to have one decision maker. There's no question. But I think everybody, there has to be a separation of powers to really make this whole thing uh, valid and work at its, at its uh, utmost abilities. Well, let's talk about a real world example of adding a player to a roster where maybe you want to think about the manager's opinion. The New York Mets lose Jacob DeGrom to the Texas Rangers, five-year contract, $185 million. They pivot as quickly and as well as they can sign Justin Verlander for two years, $86 million. Now, there is a history between Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. They played together in Detroit, and the reports are that it's, well, let's kind of call it a friendly rivalry, and maybe sometimes not so friendly, to the point where it's been compared to Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson back in the days with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, they got on each other's nerves. Listen, it worked out in 01, right? They won a World Series. But, for instance, there's a story that that I heard that Schilling just loved to tweak Randy Johnson. They were just birds of a different feather. And Schilling would ask Randy Johnson, well, how much money do you get from an autograph show? And Johnson would say whatever the number was, say $100,000. And Schilling, just on purpose, would say, well, I get 110000 And it wasn't true, but he did it just to tweak Johnson. And it kind of kept this rivalry going that it was sometimes kidding on the square, maybe cut a little too close to home. So the Mets did have to do a little bit of intel here with Max Scherzer and like make sure he was okay. You don't, certainly don't want to surprise your guy by bringing in a, a, someone that, even if he was friendly with him, let's face it, you want to get his opinion on Johnson. Justin Verlander. So obviously you still are going to sign a player. You're not going to preclude yourself from getting Justin Verlander based on a friendly rivalry. But it was an interesting clubhouse dynamic that now Buck Showalter will deal with. I'm sure it's not a problem, but these are the kind of things you got to look into behind the numbers. I'm not sure if you had anything quite like that, Joe, where you introduce somebody to the clubhouse and you have to figure out if there is friction or maybe friction develops later. But I do remember you telling the one story about, I think it was your first day or one of your first days with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. You almost had a fight on the field. Right. Yeah, we did. That was uh, just when guys were running <laughs> arcs, we would call them, around the outside edges of the grass where Elijah Dukes and Carl uh, kind of got after it uh, pretty. I thought they were kidding around until I figured out very quickly they were not. Yes, yeah, CC, Carl Crawford and Elijah went after it pretty well right there. And that was like, yeah, again, then you have to know the dynamic of these guys going to be on the same team. How is it going to coexist? What kind of conversations do I have to have with them in advance? Do we really need to keep them separate? Can we get them back together somehow? There's all different, you're absolutely right, so many different things to consider. And when you're coming to acquiring players, especially if a guy's within the same position, I know starting pitchers are starting pitchers and you need five or six of those guys. But if you're going to bring somebody in that may conflict in another way with, with an established player on your team, I think it is wise to talk to that player 
player in advance. And I can't remember specifically, but I've done those kind of things. I can't give you examples exactly, but I've done that. We've done that in different cities where if you're going to bring somebody in and you can see an existing conflict, maybe something personality-wise, something that occurred in a previous lifetime with a different team or just based on position and what it can do for playing time, or is there there a consideration of having to move a position? Of course, you want to do all of that in advance. And I think that's good. There's There's not a thing wrong with that because I'll tell you, once once you get to the building and spring training or in the regular season, it's very difficult to overcome that or surmount these kind of situations unless you've done your work in advance. If you've done the work in advance and people commit to different, yes, we'll get, you know, of course, I'll be able to coexist. Of course, winning is the most important thing and we'll do whatever it takes to, to make sure that we get on the same page and you get those kind of conversations in advance. Then when it act, the situation actually does occur, we are coming together under the one roof. It's a lot easier to navigate that moment as opposed to trying to avoid the conversation and just just thrust two people into a situation that uh, can become more difficult. Yeah, my guess, knowing both of those guys, is no matter what the relationship is, it's going to bring out the best in them. Now, listen, they don't need much help. They're both self-starters, extremely highly motivated and highly talented individuals. But I I think the rivalry aspect, if not outpitch each other, just got to outwork each other, I think that's going to be good for the New York Mets. Absolutely will be, and I I thought that same thing. You're absolutely right. When we get back, we want to talk about the Hall of Fame. Fred McGriff finally going in, and the steroid guys may never be getting in. We'll talk about that on The Book of Joe when we get back. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media 
as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Joe, I'm sure you heard about the Hall of Fame announcement. This was the Contemporary Era Committee. 16 people walk into a room. 16 people walk out agreeing that Fred McGriff is a Hall of Famer. I'm so happy for Fred. When he was on the writer's ballot 10 years without getting 40% of the vote, you need 75% to get in. I voted for him every year. I think his career was a Hall of Fame career no matter what, but I also think it was underserved and underappreciated because the other guys who did use steroids, Fred McGriff was a guy winning home run titles with 35 and 36 home runs, and he kept throwing up his 30-plus homers, but it looked like nothing. One year he hit 32, and he finished 17th in the league, whereas it was good enough to challenge for the title before the game went wild with steroids. So good on Fred McGriff, just a classy gentleman, never complained about coming up short or really not getting that close to getting in, but never complained about it. Good things happen to those who wait, and that's Fred McGriff in this case. I've always heard that. Uh, I think one of my nuns told me that years ago. Good things come to those who wait. I, I actually had, uh, I invited Freddie to come to camps. When I, was with, when I started out with the Devil Rays, I wanted Freddie in camp. I was trying to get uh, the alumni more involved in Tampa Bay. I'd, and eventually it turned out to be Davey Martinez, the guy that got there and eventually became a World Series manager with the uh, winning manager with the Nationals. But I had Freddie, I tried to get Wade out, Davey, uh, Roberto Hernandez, guys that I thought were influential in the growth of the Devil Rays at that particular time. And I got Freddie out there. So I got to know Freddie. Freddie is, he's wonderfully, he's got this uh, unique laugh that's really infectious. So he is, he's a pleasure to be around. And not one time uh, during that time that uh, you ever hear anything. This was a couple of years ago. So the voting for the Hall of Fame was an as uh, pertinent to him at that point. It was, it was just the beginning of it. But the guy never really bemoaned anything. I, I don't ever heard him do anything. He, he likes to play golf. So he'd want to get out of there and he'd go play golf at Old Memorial. And uh, that was it. And he'd come and he'd show up and he'd, he'd just be uh, a pleasure. He's just a pleasure to be around. He's a lot of fun. He had a little bit of a front office gig with the Devil Rays at that time and then the Rays. He had his own office upstairs. Wasn't used that often, but we, we joked about that. But Freddie hangs out with my boy Chico. Chico Hernandez is the, uh, Fernandez is the uh, video guy for the uh, 
raise, and, and he likes to sit. Uh, Freddie will sit in that room with Chico during games sometimes, or before, before when it was uh, you were available to do those kind of things, and they would just laugh because they're both very funny guys. So I'm I'm so happy for him. I texted him last night for him and his family. It's a great achievement, and you're right. If he had hit seven more home runs, it would have happened how many years ago? Yep, you're right. And it's not so much it's a magic number, but when you get to that number, you're celebrated. Your career is celebrated during your playing days. And he, he never really got that red carpet treatment where people could stand back and say, Freddie McGriff, he's putting up Hall of Fame numbers. And, you know, he did play for five different teams, and that's sometimes a part of it, too. But I remember Joe Torre telling me when those Yankee teams were going up against the great Braves teams in the World Series, saying the one guy he feared the most in that lineup was Freddie McGriff. And uh, I told Freddie that story once. And Freddie, he's such a humble guy. He's like, really? He said that about me? <laughs> uh, just a pleasure to be around. He and is, as for the absolutely. steroid guys, Joe, I really want to get your opinion on this because everybody does seem to have one. Uh, listen, based on the results, they don't announce complete results. But guys like Bonds and Clemens got less than four votes of the 16 people in the room who can vote for up to three people on their ballots. So to me, if I'm Bonds and Clemens and I see the result of this after going 0 for 10 on the writer's ballot, there's no hope of getting into the Hall of Fame right now. Now, things can change. I would never say ever. I mean, who knows? As time passes, maybe opinions do. But as it stands right now, there is no momentum to think those guys are going to the Hall of Fame. And I know there's some people who say, oh, what's the Hall of Fame without, you know, the guy who won seven MVPs, the guy who won seven Cy Youngs. It's still the Hall of Fame, folks. There's the Hall of Fame Museum where their stories are well told. And then there's the plaque of the Hall of Famers themselves, which is the highest honor in baseball. That's sort of like the inner circle of the Hall of Fame Museum. You only get in there, in my book, when you play the game not just well, but you play it right. The bedrock of competition is fair play. When you use PEDs, it's a conscious effort. It's not a mistake. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme. It takes effort to maintain this deception that you're pulling off to get an uneven playing field, an edge over the guy on the other side of the field. That is done purposefully, and it's done covertly. People don't talk about it to this day because they know it was the wrong thing. So me as a voter, I never excused the choice to use steroids. You never become good enough or a big enough star to sit, to make me say, you know what, you're good enough now. You can go ahead and break the rules. You can go ahead and disadvantage players who are playing the game clean. And whenever I had a ballot in my hands, Joe, I thought about all the clean players that I talked to during that era who were ticked off that they were put in a position where they either had to go against their moral compass and use steroids just to compete, or... They had to be disadvantaged. That's not a place anybody should be in where you're trying to play the game the right way and you're disadvantaged. Those are the guys I think about. I don't think about being an excuse maker for guys who made the wrong decision. It's like Dan Nolte, who is a pitcher who otherwise never would have made the major leagues, who added about eight miles an hour to his fastball by using steroids, said, listen, we all knew it was the wrong thing when we did it. So I don't want to hear at Hall of Fame time, we should start excusing it now in retrospect. I have no problem with keeping these guys out. I, I don't see an avenue that they are going in. And listen, Joe, if you had, you know, we saw it with 300 or so writers. We saw it with 16 people in the room. If you grab 200 people off the streets or the lobby of the hotel here at the winter meetings and ask people, should they be in the Hall of Fame? 
you're not getting 75% of the people to think that steroids are okay, not just okay, but celebrated. So that's my rant on the Hall of Fame. I don't feel sorry for these guys. They have their records. You know, they have their numbers. That's not going to change. But they don't have what I believe is the highest individual honor you can give anybody in baseball. You lived through that era. You saw it happen. Yeah. I did. And uh, well, I can't top your rant. Your rant's right on the money. And uh, But I could say this. I saw a lot of these guys, I think, before they ever did ingest anything or shot up with anything. I saw Bonds at Arizona State when he was, what, 18, 17, 18, 19 years of age. I used to go to ASU Packard Stadium almost nightly when I started out as a scout in 1981. And I saw this skinny left fielder, man, um, that had incredible power at that time, uh, just the way his body moved, defense, his arm wasn't that great at that time. But nevertheless, this was a really good uh, baseball player. And then eventually you see him go to the big leagues and everything else that he had done. But this guy, uh, without any kind of aid whatsoever, would have had a Hall of Fame career. There's no doubt or question in my mind. Uh, Alex Rodriguez, I saw him when he was 17, 18 instructional league at uh, in Peoria, Arizona during uh, games down there. And I saw this guy, first game I saw him, he went up the middle for a ground ball to his left. I mean, way up the middle, behind the bag, on the grass, at the pirouette, threw somebody out at first base. For us, that ran pretty well. And I think, God dang. I mean, that was like so incredible. And I saw him hit home runs in his early like, first year or so with the Mariners so deeply into the old configuration of Anaheim Stadium that Wow. I mean, nobody else could hit the ball at, at that distance. And he was still a thin young man. And guys that didn't even make well, McGuire is another example. I saw him. Wow. I saw him uh, in instructional league with the Oakland A's. Very thin kid. Great power. Actually was playing third base at the time. Absolutely had a Hall of Fame potential, even without any kind of aid. It's just how we think as human beings, this this, this substance comes along. And uh, when you're that young, sometimes we all make bad decisions. And obviously, these guys made decisions that weren't really in their best interest uh, long term. So it is. It's difficult to understand why they did it. But I'm here to say, minus that stuff in them, I, I from what I saw athletically as a scout at that time, they all would have fared very well. They all probably would have had Hall of Fame careers. And that's the sad part about this, the fact that they're going to be, going to be unable to achieve the highest level what all kids want to do as Major League Baseball players based on a bad decision that they made, whereas their talent level was so good, they did not need to help in the first place. Yeah, it's well said. That's that is the shame of it. You know, not that they're going in, but they had enough Hall of Fame ability to get in without the use of AIDS. Um, but I understand it. I understand why guys made decisions. It was it was available. Yep. And they saw other people doing it and they say, why not me? So do I understand it? Absolutely. Do I condone it and endorse it? No. But one other thing, you, you, you already said it. Uh, I mean, I, there was other guys I know that are rallied against it. And even as, as a young manager with the Devil Rays, then the Rays, I thought when uh, MLB got uh, more stringent on steroid usage at that, that particular junction, 2006, 7, 8, I thought that was necessary for the Rays to ascend. I thought without those, them get the MLB becoming more stringent upon the usage of um, performance-enhancing drugs, that in and of itself helped us to get better because if that was not come down on as hard as it had been, these other teams would have continually bought these players that were using this stuff and it would have been very difficult for us to compete against these guys. It just would have because we're not going to pay that amount of money for 45, 50, 60 home runs where other groups would. So it was very important for teams in second division to ascend teams like the Devil Rays at that time and then the Rays. That particular ruling, the ability, the, the, the fact that MLB came down so hard on steroid use permitted the Rays to ascend a lot more 
quickly and that was a big part of our early success and what you're seeing today. I got to tell you, Joe, that is a great point. And that's the first time I've heard that. And listen, I've been living this thing my whole life, it seems like, this soap opera of PEDs in baseball. Mm -hmm. And it's a great point. I had not thought about it, but you made me just think about when I wrote a story with Ken Caminiti in 2002, which kind of blew the what I call the worst kept secret baseball out into the open. You know, he talked about driving down to Tijuana, Mexico and just walking into a pharmacia and and buying his testosterone and self-administering. He had no idea what he was doing. And obviously it evolved to the point where these guys had chemists, they're going to laboratories, they're having their blood drawn, all their levels checked. It it did become uh, an arms race of pharmacology and they're going to top grade scientists, essentially, to get premium stuff. So it did become a matter of resource, right? And, and and whether you can afford that kind of advantage, because it's not aspirin, folks. When you talk about steroids, there's all kinds of different levels and yeah. there's ways to use and ways to obtain that are differentiated by money and resources and availability. And then right down to the organization itself, teams that could afford to pay for players that have done that particular thing. Not everybody could at that time, and the race certainly would not. And thus, I wanted a level playing field where the team that played better baseball on that particular night gets to win a baseball game, not a team that is loaded with more dudes that are shot up with steroids. That's a team that's probably going to beat you if, in fact, it was legal and teams are permitted to really um, load up on, no pun intended, on those kind of guys. Yeah, great point. Um There's no guest today, so it's time for a reading from the book of Joe. So I'm going to ask you, Joe, to pick our number for the day, because just to fill people in, if they didn't listen to Jason Hayward play our game last week, I believe that in our book, the book of Joe, there's so much good stuff in this book that you can open any page and find something that starts a conversation or makes you think. Uh, That's the goal of the book. And what we do is we go to a random page between 1 and 368, and have our reading from the book of Joe. So Joe, what kind of number would you like today? Have to go with 70, brother. Oh, of course. No. Seven zero. Tell the story of how you wound up with that as your number, by the way. Yeah, I was uh, I was number 20 forever. I uh, started out in the minor leagues with the Angels as number 20. Uh, minor league catcher, coach, uh, rover, all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, we acquired Don Sutton. And uh, uh, Sutton comes in. And all of a sudden, they show up in spring training one day, go to my locker, and there's number 70 in my locker. And uh, because Don obviously was number 20. And, um, and that's it. So the day that that occurred, I said to people that would listen to me, I will never change this number again because nobody's ever going to want number 70. And I'm going to I'm going to wear this way, this number all the way through the big leagues. When I did get to the big leagues in 94, my friend Mark Langston gave me a hard time. Langley said, you got to get rid of that number, man. That's way." I said, no, Langley. I've had this since Sut came on board. And since he came on board, I said, I'll always wear this number. I'm going to make number 70 famous. I told that to Langley <laughs> one day. And that's how number 70 came to be. That's exactly true. I love it. Well, you picked, well, like I said, every page is a good page, but you picked a good page. This goes back to the World Series Game 7, 2019. A.J. Hinch is talking about having Garrett Cole, his starting pitcher, in his bullpen for the seventh and deciding game. And it's about kind of a dilemma, Joe, that managers face when you want to win a game and protect the health of your players. And in this case, it's Garrett Cole who's about to become a free agent. So his future earning power is also on the line when it comes to can he pitch out of the bullpen in game seven? If you remember, of course, Houston had a lead in that game, lost, and Garrett Cole never did get into the game. So here is the quote from page 70. A.J. Hinch talking about his plan about using Garrett Cole in a potential game seven situation. 
After his start in game five in Washington, we talked every day. There was a lot at stake, either me in particular or the modern manager in general. We are a little closer to the players than they were back in the day. This creates its own set of challenges. This isn't from Garrett. This is coming from me. From a financial standpoint, contracts are available to everyone these days. There's a greater knowledge and acknowledgement of outside influences with the modern-day manager. Managers didn't feel it like it was front and center back in the day. Now, there's personal responsibility. The Houston Astros, Joe, lose the game. Garrett Cole did not pitch in that game. He would have pitched if it was a clean inning if Houston had a lead. They had a lead in the middle of the eighth inning, seventh inning, and and lost it. So the opportunity did not present itself. A.J. Hinch lost the game. Nationals win. Garrett Cole is not used on two days of rest in that situation. Can you relate to that situation about trying to win a game at the same time, protecting a player, whereas you know back in the day, Joe, I don't think managers were so concerned about that. No, Jim Lomborg pitches, right? No, it's uh, I, I totally can empathize Hinchy's thoughts right there. Absolutely, I can. Um, however, I will say this. If the pitcher being in this situation, Cole convinced me that he was well and he could do that, I would not have hesitated. I don't. I really don't think I would. On the other hand, I, I totally agree with what he had said. You're always looking out for the player's best interest, his family, the longevity of his career, all that kind of stuff. I absolutely have pondered that in making decisions. However, when it gets to that particular part of the year, that game, if I was convinced that he was well, knowing that he's going to have all winter to be um, rested, whatever, I probably would have done it, quite frankly, I would. But I do I do appreciate what he said and, and, and the reason for not doing it, and I, and I can't disagree with that. I'm just saying I have such a, um, when it comes to veteran players, pitchers, uh, and I think it would be consistent with what I've said about bullpen usage over the past, in, in, again, in the book of Joe and stuff that had happened last year with the Angels. If a veteran pitcher tells me he's good to go, I believe him. And under those circumstances, I probably would have. But again, I defend uh, AJ's right to not use him in that situation. Yeah, it's really interesting. Both perspectives, of course, managers who've who've been in these situations know. And I think the book really, and you specifically, Joe, does a great job of exploring what goes into decision making in the dugout in real time, because we're all experts after the game or we sit there with some numbers and say, hey, he's got two hits and seven at bats against him in his career. But there are so many layers to this onion when it comes to what goes into a decision and mm-hmm. multiply that by the number of decisions that have to be made across the game and then multiply that when you're in a winner go home postseason game like a game seven. So if you really want to know what goes into so many layers of decision making in a major league dugout, you'll find a lot of that in this book, The Book of Joe. Right on, Tommy. Thank you. And yeah, I agreed. Um, it is layered. It's nuanced. Uh, there's and, and that's where I talk about feel being the gift of experience and 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 why it's so important to have that uh, that those that time in your back pocket from so many years of having done it in the past it matters it really matters because um, when you when you face situations and I'm giving you this perfect example with Cole not even having been there what I would have done under those circumstances based on uh, the recreation that you had given me there what we had in the book um, I could not I don't think be as clear or or certain have I had not gone through it in the past with different guys so. That's where uh, I think experience really plays big. Well, you made a good choice, number 70. It's one of my favorite passages in the book because, as I said, it gets you really in-depth into what goes into decision-making. So, And as I said, 
you can turn to any one of those 368 pages. You'll find something interesting. So, Joe, I have to go back and start patrolling the uh, potted plants in the lobby again. Make sure everything is okay. See what's going on at the winter meetings here. Go Um, for it. What do you got for us to take us home? Yeah, I mean, actually, this is a, a validation of something that we have in the book. It's one of our chapters, and it's one of our T-shirts where I talk about do simple better and came across this recently, and I'm really pleased to announce that Mr. Leonardo da Vinci, back in his day, like late 1400s probably, I think it was the late 1400s, I came up with simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Wow. So uh, Leo had kind of the same thought way back in the day. I'm not comparing myself to Leo, but it's nice to be validated by a thought like that. (laughs) Amen, brother. Love it. We'll see you next time on the Book of Joe. All right. So how do the boys? See you, man. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i'm diosa and I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct, but most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.